0: Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about heroes. Um, and I guess I've been thinking about heroes a lot because I think that word's getting tossed around um, the media right now during this quarantine and during the COVID Uh, crisis and so I'm wondering if you ever had real life heroes or heroes like part of your schema like were they a part of your schema as a child or do you have them now
1: I don't know I I guess I was always like a nerdy kid and so you know if there was like an author I really love like uh when I was getting into comedy Douglas Adams was like a comedy hero for me Mm -hmm. um And, you know, anytime I was getting into intellectual ideas, I kind of like glorified scientists, you know, famous scientists and their ideas. So it was always like a really nerdy thing.
0: I had a hero when I was very, very little. My grandma gave me a she had National Geographic subscriptions. Right. So and no toys. So she had this issue of National Geographic. I want to say it was from 82 or 83, and it was about this woman, Eugenie Clark, who was a Ph.D. scientist, marine biologist, and the whole issue was about sharks, and she discovered all these nursing sharks in these underground caves, and they weren't moving because the water was hyper-oxygenated, and I, I became so obsessed with this woman. And I still have the National Geographic, but I would carry it around with me. I carried around with me in the car, to church, like, every to school, in my backpack, like, 24-7. This thing was, like, my security blanket, like, Linus, for years – And it pushed me to do a bunch of science stuff, and I was going to be an ichthyologist, and I went down and did some stuff in the Bahamas in high school and did some fish and invertebrate counts, and she was, I mean, you were talking about nerd heroes, man. She was my nerd hero until I was an adult, I would say. But also Bill Maher, oddly enough, when I started getting into comedy, I was, like, obsessed with him because I was into politics, and there were no... I mean, not really any stand-up comedians who are doing hardcore political work. I mean, their work had a political edge. They had political thoughts, but it wasn't about politics per se. And I binged on Bill Maher really hard when I was in college, thinking about how to marry politics and comedy in a way that would connect with people so even though I disagree with 70 percent of what came out of his mouth and pretty vociferously disagree the libertarian stuff is just so white um I thought he he was a really good model in thinking about how to use comedy as a political provocation I don't think about heroes now that I'm a grown-up so much like at all yeah it's not part of my schema at all. So it's weird for me to think about adult people thinking about he- heroes in the way that I did as a kid, like in the way that you were describing about, you know, be- nerding out about scientists and, you know, authors and comedians. I don't have that schema now. So it's it's very odd to me when adults do, because I think it's a kind of meaning making that I-, I don't share.
1: <laughs> i think it's uh actually kind of like a very masculine thing like yeah, totally agree. um because women i mean they've got to take care of themselves don't really have time to focus on like someone is go- gonna come help you like i gotta put some fucking food on the table i've got <laughs> you know i just have to take care of business and so i think a lot of the um hero worshiping has kind of consolidated around masculine figureheads like sports heroes and um, and men like Bill Maher as like intellectuals who are you know there's misogyny that's Mm -hmm. built into some of their intellectual work and some of them are just like flat-out jerks so (laughs) and, and I like him as um, an example of that because a lot of people do look up to him as an intellectual and a comedian, um, but it's complicated because heroes are flawed and it's delusional to think otherwise. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean,
0: Lamar is fucking trash. There's just like no way around it. But, but you know, I, I like the idea of thinking about killing and eating your heroes, especially the ones who are, uh, I don't know, political symbols, right? We, we're making a distinction here between everyday heroes and like the glorified hyper masculine thing. And the thing about it is that men have leisure, right? So they have all this time to like, I don't know, fucking imagine shit about themselves that's not true. So like the entire DC or Marvel or Disney universe of like man heroes is just so masturbatory, but it's so big and it's so it's so marketed because men have leisure time. <laughs> White men have leisure time. You know? And women don't. But and I also, you know, speaking on this issue of the gendering, I really do not like the term "she rose." <laughs> I think <so. laughs> it's ridiculous. Actually, you know, it's like best female actor. I, I do we have to? Why do we? Have to, <laughs> you know,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, I like it in so far as it points out that most heroes are men that it points out that it's an extremely gendered concept anyway and that like almost all narratives of heroes are about uh, men and often men who don't consider women to be people
0: yeah but all the heroes are like super hardcore femme givers who are super care work and it's hyper-gendered and hyper-femmed and real cis, hetero. And I don't, I don't know that it's a useful analytic. I think it's probably on net bad.
1: I mean, in general, I think most of like those, superhuman type depictions of heroes are also not useful (laughs) as an analytic i mean i I don't know we talked about batman when we were um on the hey hey nwa podcast but i think it's a conversation i want to return to here um i mean it's batman is some kind of propaganda right like where your superhero is conveniently defending the status quo and sheroes are like that too. They're conveniently defending (laughs) your notions of what women should be. And, you know, like during the cold war, the villains in the comic books were all conveniently communists. And, you know, Batman's villains are conveniently agents of chaos that want to disrupt the status quo. Like many of them have an intellectual agenda that's anti-capitalist and even like straight up working class. And, Batman is like the hyper-capitalist who is just trying to preserve (laughs) the status quo that enabled him to collect all that wealth.
0: Basically, Batman is Eric Prince. He's a fucking mercenary, garbage human being, hyper-capitalist who hoards the wealth and the technology and lords it over in this, like, extremely emotionally unavailable – I mean, he's, like, anti-empathy – uh, he's garbage. My kid has been obsessed with him since she was extremely teeny, and I'm just like, Batman is not emotionally available. You cannot love Batman. It's you not know, cool. When he sings, he he has no friends. You know, he has servants, which we we definitely totally disapprove of. You know, like I have been doing anti-Batman work since she was little because she was just completely entranced with him. Now, that being said. Batman is useful in thinking about white narratives of justice and how often they center on vigilante shit, which is like so colonial. It's anti-native. It's anti-black. It's anti-brown. It's anti-queer. It's super misogynistic. The women are props. I mean, it's just very terrible. So the fact that he continues to circulate in public culture and recirculates around New York narratives and like, I'm like, he's a terrorist, y'all. I I really hate to break it to you, but definitely not a hero. Except that he can't, there's no world in which he's read as an anti-hero, right? He's, He's glorified anyway. It's maddening to me. Batman pisses me off, is what I'm saying.
1: Batman's always wanted because the police on the front have to show that they don't stand for, you know, that kind of disruptive violence. But behind the scenes, they actually support him because Batman can do the shit that they're not allowed to do. Yeah, like, mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's all extra It's you. super extra Also, yeah. it's
1: carceral.
0: It's like all prison, all the time. I mean, <laughs> I, I saw whichever one of the Batmans <clears throat> with Bane, you know, went and saw that in the movie theater, And I'm like, well, Bane is a hero. <laughs> can we talk about what it means to hold, you know, hostage the police state, like the stop and frisk fucking police state of Gotham, because that seems like a good convo.
1: Yeah, that whole movie was an allegory of Occupy Wall Street. Batman helped crush. I mean, (laughs) just an asshole.
0: I don't know. I mean, it's interesting thinking about, you know, the way in which the comics circulate superheroes at the same time that people are heroizing, say, like political figures. So Martin Luther King and Huey Newton talked a lot about what it meant for for a people to put all of their like faith and hope and political fantasies onto their bodies and about how damaging it was and how it short-circuited their own agency because they wanted to just like dump all this affect into these very real mostly men but not entirely right not exclusively male political figures. And I think there's truth to that. I think it's very, I think it's probably very unbearable to be a real life hero, especially in the political realm, and especially if you're, you know, from a minority or underrepresented population. That seems like terrible. And yet, you know, that seems to be displaced also by this constant fantasizing about Lego figures, (laughs) you know, movie people and comic book things. It's so odd to me. It's It just strikes me as so politically juvenile.
1: I think it's also problematic, too, because in the focus on celebrity, like we hail innovators and founding fathers and superheroes like someone else is going to save us. And it's not it, it doesn't recognize like the everyday work that you have to do, like around activism, <laughs> you know, like. It's individual genius that can save you or like some kind of superhuman feat, some like extremely special person, like rather than cumulative effort actually drives progress. You've got to recognize that the little steps, those are just as important as big innovations that draw mass acclaim, you know, like the little shit has to happen too. And we've got to recognize that we've got to celebrate that also. And if we divert I think, more of our attention to that and less towards celebrity, I think we get better outcomes.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that the superhero shit especially is just like empire building crap, right? I think it's white narcissism almost exclusively. The superheroes are insufferable. Superman is fucking insufferable. He's such a bitch. I can't even imagine sitting through a full length film as an adult person and be like, this is the jam. Iron Man is the same guy as Batman, basically, right? Tony Stark is trash. Um, I I don't know. It is like, it tells you everything you need to know about how fucking vapid white empire is. And obviously the standout is Black Panther, which I talked about a bunch on that Hey Hey, NWA episode and about how important it is to think about hoarding technology and (laughs) the relationship between technology and race progress, which is like a huge part of the conversation about Right. Um, Blackness in the United States and about the relationship between the West and Africa. But with the exception of Black Panther, which of course has its problems, but is also much more politically savvy than basically any of the Marvel or DC films. I just think that the, you know, the focus on celebrity of any kind, but especially this like, I don't know, regurgitated World War Two propaganda crap is probably pretty bad for the culture. Um, and you know, I feel very boycotty about it. Like I can't, it, it's not for me, except for me to be like, hey, this is still shit. This is still shit. This is bad discourse. It's, you know, it's the same, same whiteness just puked back out, you know, with a slightly different context. And I, I feel the same way about Wonder Woman, really, although, <laughs> you know, Gal Gadot is well cast. I just... You know, it's still this like World War II framework imported into this contemporary moment, just chilling the same shit that the white people are going to save us when they're really that this is the moment when we're seeing the empire collapse as a result of white people. So I think there are not lessons there that are positive. I don't don't think those, those things are heroic at all. It's the wrong frame. And I also think that there's this moment really since the 90s. I mean, it's been there before. Too, But I think it calcified around The Sopranos about antiheroes and about our obsession with white antiheroes. Like, I mean, I don't watch a lot of TV, admittedly, for this very reason, because it's these like trashy white dudes who suck. And, you know, maybe they're cooking up meth and they happen to be a teacher. But it's hard to get interested in their storylines when I'm being asked to identify with such vapid people.
1: I mean, on the face of it, like, you're supposed to, as a viewer, sympathize with the fact that what they're doing isn't, like, as bad. It kind of flips, like, what we consider crime on its head. Uh, But it turns out, like, Walter White and Dexter, even though, like, the crimes that they're actually committing aren't as bad as, you know, like, we morally can support the crimes they're doing because they're doing them for Dexter is not doing it for a legitimate reason, but, you know, he's killing bad guys. So in some way you can, like, have some kind of moral justification for treating him like the hero. But, like, they're fundamentally bad people. Like, Dexter isn't bad because he kills people. He's bad because he ruins the lives of everyone around him, his sister in particular, uh, in service of his addiction to killing people. And Walter White is... Power hungry. He's not bad because he makes myth. He's bad because he's ha- power hungry and selfish and doesn't consider other people's, you know, has zero empathy uh, in service of his megalomania, you know? So I like those narratives because, like, these characters are still bad and you read them that way. But it's not because of the crimes they're doing. It's because of how they fucking treat other people. I mean, people. okay, but
0: also they all function to expand the realm of possible for what kind of white violence we find acceptable. So that's, that's my true. problem with the Like, I love Justified. I love Timothy Oliphant. He's one of my favorite actors of the white dudes. Like, I like a bunch of his shell love Deadwood. Fine. But at the end of the day, all of those shows, Westerns, whether they're, you know, set in the quote-unquote West or whether they're space Westerns or whatever, all they do is expand the realm of the possible for possible justifications of white violence. And it it doesn't work the same way for women or people of color or people that are not in the quote-unquote West or who are located in the quote-unquote Third World or in the Global South or whatever. There is not... There's not the same kind of space accorded to heroes or anti-heroes who are non-normatively right-situated.
1: We hold white men to different standards. Like, they're allowed, they have, like, certain permissibility. And with superheroes, like, I don't know what separates them from villains because they're just so violent, Um, other than that they don't kill. They have this, like, one principle they don't kill that's, like, the only thing that separates them from the actual Yeah, I mean, I
0: think that the whole architecture of the white male hero is just uh, an excuse to produce the carceral state, to produce empire, to produce this masculinity that is allowed to do whatever it wants. So, like, I think there's a Venn diagram wherein... The white dudes who love Justified and the white dudes who love Breaking Bad and the white dudes who love Dexter are also like rabidly anti abortion. There's no sense of irony because it's expected that white men get to take up all of the violence space on earth and then they get to circumscribe, you know, what kind of violence other people can justify within or outside of their own truth regimes. So. It's hard for me to read much of the corporate TV, HBO especially, but also Showtime as anything other than, you know, expanding the realm of violence possible by white men. And I think about like Harvey Weinstein, like, you know, as if you think about the political economy of filmmaking, I think that you could trace a lot of the narcissism of white violence and sexualized violence. To just individual predators who control the political economy of particular film studios.
1: I can't help but think of the success of the newest Joker movie, Todd Phillips' Joker movie, being nominated for so many awards this past year. And, like, with Joaquin Phoenix largely sweeping the Best Actor category uh, in many of the industry's awards, like, at a time when there's so much criticism around diversity in the industry and when there's so much criticism around male violence against women.
0: Oh, yeah. And also it's so Trumpian, right? Like to to have Joker sweep all the awards in the Trumpian moment. <clears throat> because, I mean, if we're not watching just like the theater of cruelty – I don't really know what else is happening. Like, that is the political moment we're living in the United States. Certainly the Brits are living through it under Boris Johnson. It's a hyper-consolidation of white power. It is – and it's hyper-masculine. So, you know, it it is in no way surprising to me that the Joker becomes, like, this movie with, I think, you know, a star at its helm who – absolutely has been at the center of a bunch of allegations about sexual violence, whether he was a part of them or his, you know, his co -co co-producers and co-writers and colleagues were, I'm thinking particularly of Casey Affleck, you know, and it's not that it's a me too thing. Exactly. It's just like, come the fuck on. Are we still, why are we still doing the goddamn Batman thing?
1: Still. Yeah. And it also makes perfect sense for Trump to criticize Parasite for winning. (laughs) Like, you know, why didn't another white man win? Like, instead of saying, like, well, why aren't we recognizing more of our diverse artists? (laughs) Two two things
0: about (laughs) that. One is that I feel like it's a self-soothing thing. Like, Batman and all the superhero shit as a whole works as a sort of self-soothing mechanism for white men, especially. And I think that's a problem because they use that to calm their insecurities. Right. Like if shit hits the fan, then we can all become, you know, paramilitary (laughs) billionaires or the paramilitary billionaires are going to save us. David Geffen on his yacht is going to come and save us. But the other thing about that is that I just watched Parasite last night. So, A, it's weird to watch that in the middle of, uh, you know, global epidemic. B, it is absolutely brilliant class warfare analysis. And I'm so glad that it won Best Picture and Best Director. I mean, it's absolutely a stunning film. Yeah, also the global south.
1: Yeah, and it's never going to make as much money as The Avengers. Like, in terms of, like, if you win with your dollars... These Marvel movies are wildly popular. That's correct.
0: So I was glad that it won. I was shocked that it won, Uh, but that tells us a lot. I think about the ambivalence that we have about depictions of class, right? Which is what I was saying about Bane. And also what I think is interesting about Parasite is that there's an, an ambivalence about class that continues to be a really prominent thread in American political life. And I think that that's where you started the conversation about local heroes right now in the middle of this crisis is thinking about the ways in which the discourse is shifting around essential, quote unquote, essential workers and child care and the way that this crisis is pushing for broader labor protections. All of that is a consequence of reframing how we understand work and what are heroes, if not people, doing a specific kind of valorized work. So, you know, I, I like the Bane storyline because it's highlighting a class politics that was not prominent in the Batman films in the same way prior to Occupy. And I think that insofar as it has any kind of cultural value, it's doing that kind of thing. But you look at something like Wonder Woman, right, which is, you know, sort of a contemporary kind of film arc. And there's no class politics there at all. It's complete. She is she basically has this sort of social amnesia. So she has no responsibility to the context that she's in whatsoever, which is like totally white femininity. So I I don't know I'm I'm only interested in these films or these television shows and their you know sort of engagement with heroism in so far probably is it as it responds to li- real labor claims
1: I think that comedy often does the best job of having those um, that class commentary and I'm glad that Parasite won too because we need more film work that's widely celebrated that also has the the kind of class commentary. That these superhero movies do not. But I think comedy does a good job. You know, like um, there's this sketch of key on key and Peel that I really love where they are um they're playing these commentators on a sports draft, but it's not a football draft, it's a draft for like the best teachers. So they're like <laughs> yelling like they would about these sports heroes, about these teachers signing these multi-million dollar contracts, because it kind of points out how little teachers uh-huh. are paid and appreciated. So it's funny to see people paying teachers well and appreciating them well, because they're just not. um And ditto for paramedics, emergency room workers, nurses, especially right now. And then I see a lot of um dialogue on Twitter about, you know, the workers in warehouses, yep. and for years, I mean, just recently, wages have started going up there, but for years and years and years, zero movement, zero increase on wage as the cost of living went up dramatically. I, I think it's helpful to think of heroes in that every day, sense, especially now. And like, uh, in term in times of anxiety, I think we as a culture, you know, we often look to figureheads. We look for heroes to make us feel safer, and I think there are a lot of people benefiting from that characterization during this time, like healthcare workers, rightfully, um, and everyday hourly workers and folks in warehouse, too little, too late on that, and also, like, Andrew Cuomo, (laughs) probably not as deservedly, (laughs) (laughs) but...
0: Yeah. Um, at least he, he I mean, that dude knows how to do his job. And I'm not trying to take it away from him. But what a, what a complicated series of symbols he has produced over his lifetime. You yeah, know, okay. but also, also, you know, way to do your job, dude, for the most part. It's interesting to think about this political moment and how it's reframing our relationship to labor, for sure. And to think about what kind of art will come from it. Both because I think um, the virus is forcing a, I don't know, recognition of the ironies of liberalism and the failures of neoliberalism and the fact that the billionaires and the reality TV show (laughs) characters are not going to save us and because it demonstrates like just how selfish Uh, whiteness is, right? And whether it's hoarding eggs at the grocery store, whether it's hoarding PPEs by the federal government, just watching Trump's administrative officials like undercut state procurement of PPEs and ventilators is so grotesque and is so fundamentally an unmasking of racist power that I think it's um, a wake-up call, potentially. I mean, listen, obviously, I'm not one that has uh, an excess of political hope, but I think that there is an opportunity here to reframe our relationship to power. And I think that the best-case scenario is that the states come out of this moment, and people vote, I suppose, in November, and we have a, a real reassessment of executive power. Uh, because the stratification of wealth is what is making the U.S. ground zero for the pandemic. And it's like the worst president at the worst time with the worst crisis is going to guarantee the worst outcome. And so we're living through just like this collective trauma as a result of, you know, the c- celebrity, uh, hero, narcissist, supervillain, you know, vigilante.
1: I don't know, but I think his, like, lack of effectiveness is just going to, like, move the power from him to governors, which are also mostly white men. Like, Stacey Abrams didn't win Georgia. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. No, the
0: governors are white. But I think it's going to be a thing about the executive branch as a whole. Like, you know, there there is an elasticity to the separation of powers that hasn't really um, – I don't know, created accountability for a while, and i' i mean it's I'm not saying I'm optimistic, I'm just saying that there is an opportunity to do it if there's a political will. I don't know what the threshold is to move the people in a different direction uh, to think about the distribution of power and wealth, but the fact that the labor conversation has shifted so dramatically as a result of you know years of messaging by Bernie for sure, but also by a (laughs) fragmented but persistent left, especially in the union states in the north, I think it will be very interesting to see what happens because this is the biggest conversation about labor and the most radical conversation about labor that has existed sure as shit in my lifetime since I was born in the Carter administration. So, yeah, I don't know how quick, I don't think it's going to quickly shift power But I don't know what the threshold is, like how much suffering are people willing to endure for capitalism, right?
1: Yeah, I just don't know how much can change without like people having the financial stability to move away from employers that are practicing inhumane labor policies and aggressively low wages you know, like if there's more competition around where you can go work because you have something to fall back on, you can go without working for two weeks. So you can, if there's more movement, freedom of movement within labor markets, then you get employers responding to that and treating workers better to retain them. But until then, I don't see it happening. And I don't see Wages have to go up before anything Yeah, happens.
0: wages have to go up. I agree. But also there is a sense to where the quarantine is like white liberal fantasy scape, where they get to white liberals, especially bourgeois liberals, get to just hide out in their houses and not organize, right? And so I there's a sense, I think, where, I'm going to say something really controversial, where, you know, <clears throat> the right are still gathering and they're going to church and they're you know they're congregating and they're pushing and they're building ideology and liberals are like staying at home watching tv and gardening and that is i think the bigger problem is that the quarantine is an opportunity for white liberals to not do a damn thing and to only concern themselves with their pod or their household And, you know, the cis heterosexuality is not going to save them from what the labor market will become. So kudos to all of the Amazon workers and grocery store folk who are unionizing now and pushing for larger safety measures and accommodations because that's, like, where it's at. Like, you know, where is UPS? Where are the FedEx workers? Like, they're barely unionized. And they're not getting shit. And so what's going to happen to the Postal Service, right? Like the bailout bill had no money in it for them. So, you know, I actually think that there's a complicated politics to the quarantine that undercuts progressive visions of labor in a very seriously racist and middle class way. That is probably the unspoken story of this moment.
1: You're right that the people who are able to stay at home aren't going to do anything, you know, they can post a retweet about how those yeah. workers deserve at least $15 an hour, but they're still going to shop at Walmart, whether Walmart pays their employees $15 an hour or not. They're not going to change their <laughs> behaviors around consumption. They're just not going to do it. If yeah. it's inconvenient That's the for thing them.
0: though. That's the thing is that it's about the convenience. And so they will sit at home and self-sue with the Joker movie and they will complain about the politics. But at the end of the day, they're staying at home and they're not organizing and they're not building anything. And it's in that way, it's almost it's as insidious, if not more so than, you know, than the neocons and the right who are actively trying to undermine equality in the country. So in that way, I think, you know, the notion of the hero is um, it functions as an illusion that allows liberals to um indulge in inaction because the whiteness serves their self-interest even if they have class sympathies you know that are that tend to be more progressive for exactly the reason that you just identified so i don't know i think that the heroism discourse is problematic and i think it's it's problematic right now and i think that there's there's no leadership among the liberals at all at all joe biden is a wall i mean you know there's There's nothing, there's no no leadership that's happening whatsoever. And I think that that probably bodes very ill for the country, but especially for the poor.